This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled The Man in the Moon, and our author, Elizabeth E. Woods, joins me from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the program, Elizabeth. Thank you. Here I am. Well, pleasure to visit with you. You have uh, written a book that looks like, at least from preliminary looking, that it may be directed towards children. It's 32 pages of brightly illustrated or positively illustrated uh, uh, material. Share a little bit of uh, the story of The Man in the Moon. Yes. uh Well, uh, you know, when I was a child, uh, we used to know about The Man in the Moon all the time. My mother used to say when I say my prayers that The Man in the Moon, uh, he helps God look over us. But, you know, today you never hear the children mention the man in the moon. They never talk about him. So I thought it was time to bring him back to light again. And so that's what started. I had started writing in 1997, Mm. and I had written two manuscripts then. But then a tragedy struck the family, and I just put the book away and I never picked up a pen again for four years. Wow. And then of course I had another tragedy uh three or four years later and the same thing happened again. I put the book away, the manuscripts away and I never picked it up for four years. So now I'm I'm back I'm back on time. You're back on track, and and uh, your yes. background, besides uh, wanting to to write this book that would be an inspiration to children, yes. what what other uh, writing have you done, or is there anything else that has been uh, creative in your life? Yes, I, I, like I said, I really started back in '97. I wrote two manuscripts completely. Uh, one is uh, called The End of the Rainbow, and the other one is called Along Came a Genie. And as I said, tragedy struck, and I put them away, and I never looked at them again for four years. Right. And, uh, yes, uh-huh, I have several. I hope to have five books in the stores by the end of this year. Oh, incredible, incredible. I have I have two more waiting for my illustrator for my illustrator right now to start on and that will make three and then I have two more waiting for her when she's through with that. That's that's amazing. Now your close friends or and I'm going to assume that I might be considered at least a temporary close friend uh, refer to you mm-hmm. as Miss Betty. Now Miss Betty, when yes. when did you uh, you started this in 97 uh, you completed yes, this how, how how long did it take to write the the actual manuscript? Well, really, it didn't take uh, it didn't take very long. It only took longer because I didn't uh, do it. I had other things I had to take care of, and sure. uh, but I would say it would have taken no more than about uh, a month and a half. Month and a half. Your book <laughs> deals with a man in the moon. How would you describe your book if uh, if you were to describe this to someone that's listening right now that can't see the beautiful illustrations? What would you say about your book? Well, I would say that uh, 
the things that give me joy in writing it would be like if a child was home on the weekend and it was raining and he couldn't go out and play then he would reach up or she would reach up on the shelf and pull one of my books down and curl up on the sofa and enjoy just reading i read i write not to teach uh, the children anything. I write for pure enjoyment. I want them to enjoy the illustrations and enjoy reading my books. And so that that puts joy in my writing. Yes. Do you think that this is a book that parents will be able to use to, to read to their children and, and uh, share some special times with them? Oh, yes. I have, uh, I have about... Uh, 200 friends here in Philadelphia that uh, I know very well, and they have all bought the books, and they love they love the book. And I have friends who come here to my place and sit down. I have, I have a book, a copy, on my coffee table, and they pick it up, and, and I notice they go back and forth, back and forth, reading and looking at this at, at the illustrations in there, and they will tell me, "Oh, Betty, oh, this is so beautiful. The illustrations are just magnificent, and your wordings are so sweet for children." That makes me happy when I pick up my pen to write something for children to hear them say that. Is all of your writing in poetic form? I'm noticing that your your words are rhyming in your book. No, no, they're not. That only happened after that. I never started writing in poetic form. My two books are, are short stories. All my books are short stories. But I just came up to, I wanted the children now to start talking about the man in the moon. So I made it short and sweet, hopefully for them, you know? Sure. And, and so uh, that's that's what I write for. I write for pure enjoyment. Did you ever uh, aspire to maybe be recognized like Dr. Seuss, because there is some rhyming in your book? Yes. <laughs> yes. So I would be very happy to be recognized <laughs> like Dr. Seuss. Right. <laughs> Everybody knows Dr. Zeus. Absolutely. So uh, that would please me very much. Mm -hmm. One of your sentences, I can ski on snow, skate on ice, even go around the rink once or twice. Sounds a little susy to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you enjoyed this, obviously. Your illustrator did a wonderful job as well. Yes, How did you find yes, the illustrator? My, even my publisher, even my publisher asked me, uh, Betty, where did you find her? I checked. My daughter found her on the Internet. She belongs to uh World uh, Society Children for uh, writers and illustrators, and she found her. Well, she said, he said, this is my publisher, and you know, they have their own illustrators. They do. And yes, and, and he said, well, <clears throat> you were very fortunate. She, she does beautiful, extraordinarily beautiful work. Absolutely. And I'm mm -hmm. guessing because of that uh, strong relationship you've had on this first attempt that perhaps uh, the next one or two may have her touch as well. Oh, yes. Yes, she's waiting. In fact, I have two manuscripts I'm getting ready to send her in another week. 
So she'll have two, and then I have two more waiting for her when she finishes that. So like I said, I hope at the end of the year I will have four or five books in the stores. Exceptional. Are you uh, are you thinking of doing perhaps a, a short novel at some point? These are more directed for the younger audience. Uh, how old? Yes. Are you? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, I have started while she's working on my short manuscripts. I am working on a four book series called Cobby, and uh, it's four books, and each book rec- represents one year. And everything happens in the four years. And, of course, at the end of the fourth year, all the secrets in the town come out. And it's about a corncob doll. Now, this I know about because I had one. <laughs> and her fairy godmother turns her into a beautiful little girl because she has a mission in life for her. And that takes up the four books. And that starts when she starts high school. Have you always been an imaginative person, creative? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's, that's one thing I do have. I used to, I loved, loved to watch the clouds. When I was a child, I would just watch the clouds and see them go by in each other, pass each other, and I could look up there and I could make stories up about the clouds and what's happening in the clouds. I've seen horses and animals and birds and people and everything moving around and trucks and everything, Mm. all from the clouds up in the sky. I'm a cloud watcher. Most people are people watchers. I watch them too, but I'm really a cloud watcher. I've been so interested in the clouds. So, uh, yes, that's You draw true. inspiration from there. I've noticed because your your accent or your, I won't call it a southern drawl, but there is something else there besides Philadelphia in your history. Oh, you recognize that, too? Oh, absolutely. Everybody <laughs> recognizes that, too. Well, I left the South. I was born in Sumter, South Carolina, but I left that when I was five years old. Did you really? Hmm. Well, and I still have that little accent. Well, you have the accent and the charm. I will. I will say the Southern folks have a, just a gentle way about them and a creative uh, approach to life that is engaging. Uh-huh. And I think you uh-huh. have that. Yeah. So how about that? You recognize that in my voice, and everybody does. Yes, they do. <laughs> and that's the first thing they ask me: Where <laughs> were you born? I said South Carolina. South Carolina. You've <laughs> uh-huh. ri- you've written a charming book and one that uh, parents and grandparents will enjoy reading to their children, and also children will enjoy reading. The yes, book is titled yes, "The Man yes. in the Moon." And our author, Elizabeth Edwards, let me spell that for you because it's a little bit unique, E-D-W-O-O-D-S. That's right. Elizabeth, where do we get copies of your book? Oh, uh, I have to order some uh, more copies because I've given out eight copies already to friends and uh, people who are in the school system and... uh, so they can spread it around. So I'm, I'm getting ready to order some more copies now. They also can do a search online and find this, The Man in the Moon, Elizabeth Ed Woods, 
And uh, mm-hmm. Amazon will carry this and other fine booksellers around the yes, globe. Yes, uh, and Amazon carries it. In fact, Amazon just shipped a load to the Ukraine. Oh, and fabulous. I was surprised. That's uh, in Russia and Poland. And, yeah, a big ship just went down there. Oh, incredible. Uh-huh. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, best of luck on this book and also the one that comes in the future. I hope that we get an opportunity to share the stories behind those stories as well when they get published. Thank you oh, for sharing oh, uh, your history with me. I hope so. Yes, I hope I enjoyed talking with you. Enjoyed the visit. Thank you again for joining me today. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Readings for Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Kids to Cherish. Kids is spelled with a Z, the two is the number two, and cherish is just as it sounds. My author joins me from the East Coast. Andrew Collins, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to visit with you. You uh, have written other books. Uh, This is not a new experience for you, but share a little of your background. How did you become an author, and uh, why is this particular book perhaps different from your others that you've written? Interesting um, question, and I'd like to get this in. The reason I'm talking with you today is because of something that happened to me as a high school senior in 1953. Mm. I wanted to go to college. Great parents gave me everything in the world uh, that parents can and should give, except they didn't have much money. I wanted to go to college. There was a contest, an essay contest, by a, a trucking company called Pilot, and I was to write about the value of the motor trucking industry to my state which was South Carolina. And my mom was a journalism major, and she tutored me pretty well. And here is the sentence that won that scholarship for me. In 1896, Henry Ford putted down Detroit's Bagley Avenue in the funny little machine with a leather belt drive that completely revolutionized transportation. Mm. Sure, the rest of my essay was like everybody else's, but we had a great hook at the start, and really uh, that launched me into the joys and the the productivity of writing. That's a a good start for sure. I, uh, having been in the advertising business, writing uh, copy and and other things, that's a, a wonderful hook. Uh, that you have created on your first 
endeavor. Yeah. Did yeah. that lead... worked long and hard on it, Jay. I'm sure. And, uh, finally came up with that, and there's little doubt in my mind that that set me apart from all of the other entries. The book that you've written is, uh, this particular one, Kids to Cherish, is uh, around 172 pages or 170 pages or so. This is uh, directed specifically for children, is it not? Yeah, I say for uh, kids and youth, I think I think it will appeal to about ages 5 to 12, uh, and the, the format would be this. I think the 5 maybe to 7-year-olds would really enjoy it with an older person reading it aloud to them. And, and we all know that reading aloud to kids when they're young is a great way to launch a, a super education. So anyway, the younger kids probably would need to be read to, the maybe 8- to 12-year-olds. Uh, it's large print. I think they would be able to read it themselves. You have uh, multiple sketches in your book, and the artist is Andy Carver. Looks like yes. perhaps a younger artist. Yeah, she's 14 at the 14. time. Yeah, happens to be one of my grandchildren, I it and might she be. loves art. She's going to be going to the College of Charleston to study art, and uh, she's 17 now. And anyway, she loved doing these sketches, and of course, she read the book, knew the stories, and she interpreted with the sketches that she put in. Spectacular. How long did it take you, Andrew, to, to complete Kids to Cherish? I was working, still working as an orthodontist at the time, so I wrote evening spare times uh, whenever I had an opportunity. Actually, it took me about a year to, to, to write it and edit it and get it just like I wanted. You've written other books as well. Share with my audience some of your diverse interests besides this particular book. Well, uh, the first two books um, are fiction novels of the very first one titled Guild of Honor, and it's uh, the the theme of it is golf, but um, people that try to rig the outcome of professional tournaments. They have a way that they can rig who wins. Really? The second is, um, uh, is No Other Gods, and it's not religious. Gods uh, is an acronym for something having to do with the technology, but it uh, it's uh, the theme words for it are genetic alterations gone awry. Fascinating. Uh, it's, ab- it's about um, a, a treatment for mental illness where you change the, the genome of the person, and it works absolutely wonderfully. But there's an awesome side effect, and that's what drives the novel. Fascinating. You have, uh, obviously, an imagination, and a, 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 as you've uh, described, a diverse interest uh, portfolio kids to cherish how would you describe this what is the fictional novel about it, i say that it's a, a fun to read wholesome book about kids adventures it has action it has bravery it has humor it has drama so it's a chapter book there are eight chapters and each chapter is a new experience for three kids their ages uh, 11, 9, and 7. Your main character, is it a. Who, who is or what is the name of the main character? Is that Nelly? Yeah, well, uh, no, the main character, uh, his real name is Edward, but because of brave acts and good things that he accomplishes uh, in his environment, uh, they, the town pretty much comes up with calling him Edward the Good. 
And where is it set? Uh, it's in the southeast, uh, uh, southeast Myrtle Beach, and also there's a chapter that takes place in Moscow in Russia. Fascinating. You uh, obviously have a, a, an imagination to uh, to write a story like this, uh, and, and you've described the ideal student there or, or individual that might enjoy this. Is there anything about this that is going to be too intense for an older or for a younger group? I'm sorry. Not really. It has uh, it has there's a ghost story in it, but obviously it's humorous fright, and I think the kids would really enjoy it. It's it's almost comical fright. So no, it there's nothing intense uh, that would that would frighten a kid. I think they would find it is inspirational. I think they would find it a lot of fun. It's based on stories that I told to three grandchildren over 20 years ago. Mm. I'd pick them up on a Friday, and we'd go out together, and the favorite thing that they did, besides eating lunch or going to a movie, was ask me to tell them some stories. And, of course, I made up the stories and told them. And as kids often do, Jay, they would want the same story told maybe three or four times in a row three or four weeks in a row they just couldn't they, they loved it and one of the reasons they really loved it is the characters were alter egos of themselves hmm. so they they knew that these characters were basically just like them and obviously the attraction to the stories the you have mentioned that you these are stories that you told in the past is it just that you have a phenomenal memory and can remember the stories and were able to transfer those into print, or did you sit down and have to go through it from step one to step five all over again? Good question, Jay. When you've told a story maybe ten times, it's pretty much pretty burned hard. into your brain. <laughs> and so they, they would want me... Let me tell one of the stories... Uh, is something true that really happened. I had them strapped in the back seat, all three of them, and we were going to lunch and do our usual thing. And the little girl, Nellie, hands the uh, stuffed animal forward and said, and says, Da, could turtley wordly help you drive the car? Well, I take the turtle and put its little hands under mine, and then, of course, I've got to have turtley wordly do something interesting. So he jerks the <laughs> steering wheel a little bit, and I tell him, turtley wordly, you can't jerk the steering wheel. We might get hurt. Well, he, the kids just giggle and scream, says, you know, do that again. So I'm jerking the wheel just a little bit, being very, very careful, of course. Well, blue lights flash behind us, and we're pulled by a trooper. And uh, the kids are frightened to death in the back at that point. They're not saying a word. And, of course, I tell him what's happening. I show him turtly wordly And he, he says, well, you go on about your way, but I just suggest you don't do that type of driving anymore. <laughs> don't <laughs> let turtly wordly drive. <laughs> I, mm. I got the message. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. You, uh, you have uh, a career already as an orthodontist, and... It's interesting that you also feel a, a desire to, to write. Have you always been a creative? Yes. Uh, oh, yeah, I have, uh, I have several patents. Uh, I, I patented a, a basketball game that's a version of, of miniature golf. There were tw uh, 12 different shooting situations that I designed. had it open in Myrtle Beach for about 
uh, eight years and eventually wow. sold it. But the joy for me was not owning an amusement business. It was creating it and then moving on to something else. Incredible. What is the first novel or first author that you recall reading as a child or a young person? Uh, gee, oh, no question. And it's referenced in the book. Um, uh, you, and you're familiar with this. Uh, Anna Sewell's book, Black Beauty, mm. where the horse does the talking. Absolutely. Oh, I love that book. I still have a copy of it. I couldn't get enough of it. I probably read it five times. I hope it's a first edition. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. You know, it's about 140 years. Old. I know it is. It's it is yeah. an older older novel. Uh, that's. Have you received any personal advice uh, growing up? You uh, you may have received advice from a parent or or someone that has stuck with you. That you are either purposely passing along or perhaps in the underlying messages that came through in the stories you've told? Well, I, I say that the framework of this book is how I grew up. Uh, a mom, a dad, the kids all living together. We always ate our meals at a table together. Mm. I was encouraged to do things like uh, join Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts and be part of my church. So uh, I think a, a clear framework in the book is how how blessed and rewarding it can be to have a, a really great family unit that supports you through all types of situations in your life. Any hopes that some of these stories may make it onto the uh, silver screen or into animation? <laughs> I don't. My aspirations are not that high, Jay. Uh, I, basically, I write for the for the fun and the joy of it. It's a great escape for me. A lot of the lot of my writing I do when I'm out running. I'll take a little pad with me, and uh, I've run uh, 14 marathons. But anyway, in training for those, when you're out by yourself, it's great creative time. And I take a little paper and write notes about things, and then maybe I'll come back right away and write a chapter or a story based on my, uh, my conceptions during the run. Wonderful. Now, Andrew, you said you were an orthodontist. I wouldn't think an orthodontist needs a lot of extra income from writing books. Uh, do you just feel like you need to pad the uh, retirement? Jay, one of the great things about my writing is I don't have to um, get all in a wad about trying to make money <laughs> from what I do. So, Wonderful. Uh, a, a kind of a deal I made with myself when I very first got started, if, if I would be blessed to have works that I create that would be attractive to people, then I would uh, contribute all, uh, all of the proceeds from my writing to some charitable endeavor. And, for example, some of the things I've given money to over the years are uh, Boy Scouts, uh, Meals on Wheels. Um, I give several situations at my church. So anyway, a Habitat I've given money to. So any any monies that I net uh, automatically goes to charity, and I'm so happy that I can do that. Well, that's beautiful. Uh, listeners, there's another reason you should buy his book, Kids to Cherish. This book, I love the title, Kids, K-I-D-Z, 2, the number 2, Cherish, and the author, Andrew Collins. Andrew, my listeners need to get a copy of your book and share it with their families. Where do they get copies of Kids to Cherish? Yeah, they can go directly to uh, the um, the Author House website. It's authorhouse.com. 
uh, they can also get it at Amazon. And uh, any possibility that you have uh, developed or are developing a website? Yes, I have a website, and uh, I created it myself, another of my creative endeavors. I like to do (laughs) things like that. But anyway, people can access that in all caps. It's H-O-X-O-X-O-H.com. And when you look at that, Jay, it's a perfect palindrome. It's exactly the same forward, backward, upside down, and mirrored. So another (laughs) of my creative crazy things. One of those things that you uh, have done to create (laughs) havoc with the readers, I mean with the author. No, No, actually they they can access your website and and also keep in touch with this book and others that you may write in the future. They can do a search under your name, a last name spelled C-O-L-L-I-N-S, just like it sounds, not with a Z like kids is. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Andrew, for sharing your story. Fascinated by, uh, by your career and by your authorship. Thank you for joining me today. Jay, thanks very much. My pleasure. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Half questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Illegit, a memoir of family intrigue, wealth, and cruel indifference. And our author who joins me from Massachusetts in the United States, George A. Demolis. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This is an intriguing book. The back of your book talks about the the basics of how this was uh, assembled and what the premises of your book. It uh, starts off by saying, Finding My Identity, my story of how DNA proved my legacy. George, tell my listeners a little of your story and how you uh, came to this point where you used DNA to prove your father's uh, identity, and some other things about your past? Well, it started off in uh, 1993. I decided to amend my birth certificate because of the fact that I was working at the Moolah's Warehouse, which is in uh, Tewksbury, Massachusetts, and we, um, you know, they had me go in there and work in the warehouse and do uh, uh, pallets, build pallets, food pallets, and ship out to the stores, providing the fact that I would keep my mouth shut. Hmm. And we were never really acknowledged on any level, me, me, myself and my siblings, as, uh, as long as we worked in the warehouse. And I got tired of it. I realized that there was a wrong, wrongful doing here and an injustice. My father is the elder brother, 
uh, in the Demoulis family, and uh, he had five children with my mother. And um, we were mistreated, ostracized on every level because of the fact that they weren't married. And my father, being the elder brother in Greek tradition, would wreak all the benefits and do nothing. And he owned package stores within all the plazas where the supermarkets were because the, the, the company owned all the plazas, the Moore's Market Basket, and they're the 104th wealthiest in the country. Wow. And I, I knew that there was an injustice here. So I decided to fight back and amend my birth certificate. It took me nine years in probate court, over $68,000. And the only way that I won the court case because of the fact they brought in such powerful lawyers and tried to beat me down and push me aside and basically wear me out. Um, my father had passed away in 2000, and there was no calling hours. There was uh, no one knew that he had died. He died at my stepbrother's house in Andover, Jack DeMoulis. Mm-hmm. And I got a phone call from a friend of mine who pronounced my father dead. And she said, George, your father just passed away. There's not going to be any calling hours, and they're going to destroy the body. In Greek tradition, they do not cremate. I called my lawyer. I was in Palm Beach at the time with a friend on vacation. I called my lawyer, and I said, my father had passed away. They're going to destroy the body, and I'm not going to be able to amend my birth certificate. I got on a plane that night, met my lawyer at Cambridge Probate Court. We had a cease and assist at Cambridge at the Havel Crematory. Right. They get the DNA. That afternoon, my birth certificate was amended, and I became George DeMoulis. There was no way they could stop it. Incredible. So, unbelievable. You, yes, you're, absolutely. Your, your mom and your siblings, uh, you, you mentioned that uh, Mr. DeMoulis uh, Sr., who was and proven to be your father, was he, uh, did he have other family, uh, a traditional family, in addition to yours? Yes, he did. My mother was only 19 years old. She grew up in the... Uh, in a low-income area in back Central Street in Lowell, Mass., right outside of the downtown Lowell area. And my father had a nightclub there, the Golden Nugget, and she'd walk home all the time back to her house from that area, and he'd see her and stop her. And uh, she basically uh, got involved with him. He kept stopping her and talking to her. He was 37. He was married. He had already had a family. And my mother got involved in a situation that brought her nothing but heartache because he made her false promises. They stayed together for 14 years, had five children, but nothing ever materialized. He never divorced his wife. He never recognized any of us kids. And my mother knew that she had made a horrific mistake. It was a love story that went bad. She was young. She was naive and uneducated. She came from a family of 10 children, and she thought she had met her in her knight in shining armor. Hmm. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. But in that case there, with a sea of opportunity, you got to remember, my grandfather came here with my grandmother with hopes and dreams of building a better life in America, and he did that. He started the store in Lowell, Massachusetts, on Demmer Street, and created a few others before he turned it over to his son. And he, he wanted to give his kids a better life and perhaps his grandchildren. Well, I'm his grandson. I grew up in public housing, no education, no food, and they cornered the supermarket chain in New England and all over New England. An amazing story. So I ask those, those questions, why? 
and you outline yeah, like in I, you outline in your story uh, your your journey to to get recognition and become legit, even though you were mm-hmm. termed illegit. Let me ask you a question. It is a little uh, unusual that someone of that stature would uh, I bring family members if they were not recognized as such, or even people that he might have some uh, some issues with legally into the business, even at at any level. Did you have any? strange feelings about working for the Demolis uh, uh, entity? Uh, before I was recognized? Yes, correct. Um, I was always told, and I wrote it in my book, uh, my Uncle Mike, when I would see him, he said, never call me Uncle Mike, always call me Mr. D. And he goes, it's unimportant who you are, and to keep your mouth shut. Hmm. You know, so as a child growing up, you realize there's something wrong here. I didn't do anything wrong. I wanted answers. So I chose to fight back, and I turned to drugs and alcohol. I started to destroy myself because of the fact that we were so uh, pushed out or pushed aside or ostracized on such a level that was I didn't understand. I was searching for answers. I overcame that. I've been sober 30 years now. I built two businesses. I'm a homeowner. I built it from scratch with no help at all. You know, and I wasn't going to let them take me down or make me feel as if I was a victim. I didn't want to take the role of a victim. I wanted to take responsibility for my life, and most of all, honor my mother and acknowledge my brothers and sisters, to let them know that we've done nothing wrong. Two people fell in love that shouldn't have, and it happens every day. But it doesn't mean that you you push your children to the side and don't give them the basic necessities, food, housing, and education, to get them to the next level. And unfortunately, that happened. And unfortunately, it just happens to be the 100 wealthiest family in the country. You know, so it, it was a lot for me to accept. And I could not accept that because I knew in my heart it was wrong. There was no reason why we couldn't have a fair shake or at least be understood or at least have the opportunity to uh, be educated in a way that we'd be able to take care of ourselves. We didn't even get that. You're right. Uh, George, this is an incredible story and certainly took a lot of courage to write it and to, to share your inside dimensions, the inside dimensions, the dynamics of your family. How long did it take you to, to come to that conclusion, I need to share this with the public, and how long did it take to, to share the details of, uh, of this process? I started the, right after I won my court case, someone said to me, you know, George, you're never going to end up with that name. We're going to bring in high-powered attorneys. You don't have enough money. I, I saved up enough money to fight for as long as I could. And thank God I got the DNA at the crematory. Things fell into place for me. Hmm. And I believe everything happens for a reason. You know, it took me 15 years to write 80 pages book because it was expensive. I had two ghostwriters. I had to uh, find a publishing company. I didn't have any direction. I had to figure this out on my own. But most of all, I had a deep compassion and a commitment to not only myself, but to my mother and my brothers and sisters and to anyone else born in a situation like that. You're not less than. You're not minimized. You need to recognize the fact that you have a responsibility to yourself to do the right thing that wasn't done for you and make note of it, and push it in a positive direction. I'm not pointing the finger at my cousins who run the company now, who live lavish life, 
who live in multi-million dollar mansions. You know, they live in 17,000 square feet homes. Wow. I live in a 1,700 square foot condo. And I'm proud of that because I created it myself. And I understand where I stand. But I'm not going to sit to the back and say it's okay. It isn't okay. When you're in a situation like that where you felt as if you should have been taken care of or at least recognized to some level, you have a responsibility to do something about it. And I've done just that. And that's the hope that I'm trying to get out with my book. Sure. I didn't fall to the backside, is what I'm saying, and I didn't let it destroy me. Is, I want people to know that they have choices. That's the inspirational message you're wanting to, do, to convey in Illegit, correct? Absolutely. Don't. The whole point is, you know, people say, well, what, why did your mother let that happen? And, you know, your father was in a different situation. I understand all of the elements. But the point is, there's wrongful doing. The city of Lowell, my mother brought my father to court, was so cornered by their money that my mother never had a leg to stand on. They'd push her through the system. We didn't even get child support. The judge ruled for my mother, in my book, $6 per child. Ouch. To, to feed kids. Now, there were five of us. She got $168 every two weeks and tried to survive on that. And they allowed that because of the fact that the system failed her because of the fact that the Demolices had so much money back then. And what year, what, what, yeah, what year was that that that, that uh, court case took place? Oh, my God. My mother, in, in my book I wrote, I have documentation on everything. I have a file that I've accumulated since I started this when I was in my early 30s and started fighting back when I got sober. Everything's documented. And I told people to ask me any question you want. I will answer it, answer that question openly, wholeheartedly, and honestly. I have nothing to hide. I started that in, um, uh, the, my mother started the court case in 1964. Wow. And all the way up to 1978, she got nothing. Because the court systems were controlled back then in the city of Lowell. They used to say we were the best kept secret the Bedard family, because my mother went by Dorothy Bedard. And then when I went to court, the judge said, your family's not going to give you anything, George. Do you want the name? And I turned around to him. I said, yes, I do, because hmm. I'm the son of John DeMoulis. I was named after my uncle George, and I'm George Arthur DeMoulis. He goes, the name's yours. And he goes, I commend you. It's a David and Goliath story. You stood up for yourself, and you fought against an empire, and you had nothing. I literally stood there and cried. This this sounds like a movie uh, concept to me, and one that should be told in the, on the big screen. Have you had any hopes of that maybe taking place? Right now, there's a documentary going on about Market Basket because of what had happened last summer. The people stood up for Market Basket, and it's called The Power of the People. They just did an article in the Lowell Sun newspaper. What, what they don't know is that I'm in that documentary. Hmm. My book is in that documentary. And I want people to understand that they have a responsibility to themselves. And I don't want any child to feel as if they're left hand because of the situation they were pushed into. They need to know that they have choices. And a lot of people don't realize that. And that choice, the number one choice, is to be true to yourself. 
Beautifully said. Thank you, George, for sharing your story. This is a fascinating read. Readers, I think you would enjoy it and uh, find it intriguing and also uh, fascinating at the same time and also one of courage, so it's inspirational. The title of the book, again, is Illegit, I-L-L-E-G-I-T, A Memoir of Family Intrigue, Wealth, and Cruel Indifference. And our author, George A. Demolis, D-E-M-O-U-L-A-S, has joined me from Massachusetts. George, my listeners need to get a copy of your book. Where can they do so? Uh, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, eBook. It's available on every one of those websites. Uh, uh, you can reach the book anywhere you want online. Uh, and I will be in New York City the end of this month at the American Book Expo, and they're featuring my book there, and there's going to be over 60,000 people, and I'm going to be there representing my book. George, best of luck on not only this book, but also your your history and your future. Thank you again for sharing the story and having courageous uh, commitment to get it done. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you very much for having me on. Honored, Honored to visit with you. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. <laughs>